listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. So let me get into this. I want to... um... I want to cover this today because um, it's it's really mind-blowing. The thing I'm going to talk about today, Aristotle, what's up? It's very mind-blowing because this, this belief system, this thought process of what I'm getting ready to show you today, it has to be, and I say it has to be because it deals with Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. This is a champion shirt, Caitlin. Um, it deals with Christ. And it deals with his redemptive work on Calvary's cross, which is the pinnacle of everything that we have. You know, his death, burial, and resurrection, the pinnacle of Christianity. I mean, it's what we stand on. It's what we believe. So I want to deal with this, uh, and I'll I'll tell you flat out from the top, and then I'm going to break it down. I'm actually going to read some quotes from some very famous men of God and women of God. I'm not going to say their names because I do love these men and women of God and I respect them highly. Uh, I just think they're wrong on this, but I, I, I truly do love these men and women of God very much. So I'm not going to read their names or put them out there, but I want to read their quotes so you can see what it is they're saying. And these are men and women in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, uh, in the United States of America. So I'm going to read. I'm going to read those things to you and I'm going to give you this thought process and then we're going to break it down and, um, and talk about why this is so wrong. And, and if you've been in uh, the charismatic movement or you've been Pentecostal for a while, you may have already uh, heard this or may have heard somebody teach on it, talk about it, even mention it. So let's talk about it. The, the thought process is this, and I want you to write it um, in a question form in the comments as you're sharing the broadcast, by the way, write it as a question form in the comments. And here's the question. Are you ready for this? So in his uh, atoning work, Christ's atoning work for us, he took the sins of the world upon himself, you know, died on the cross. The question is, and I want you to write this just like this. Did Jesus die spiritually? That's the question. Did Jesus die spiritually? That's, that's the thing that's in question. That's what's being taught. Did he die spiritually? I want you to write that question in the comment section because it's the question we're going to answer today on the broadcast. Very important question, by the way. Uh, did he, and when I say, just to break it down a little more, did I, when I say, did he die spiritually? What I mean by that is, did he stop being the son of God in his punishment? Meaning, did he go to hell and suffer the flames of hell or the punishment of hell on our behalf? Did he go to hell, suffer the flames of hell and die spiritually and suffer as a spirit on our behalf? That's the question. And so we're going to, we're going to go in, we're going to go into that because this is a big, big, uh, a question and it's being taught. Uh, by charismatic Pentecostal people. So let's cover some of this. And I'm going to give you plenty of scripture that we're going to look at in the Bible today, but we do need to answer this question because it matters. It makes a difference. It makes a difference because 
Understand something. What you believe about the Bible makes a difference. You have to be able to look at what the scripture teaches, understand it, and form your belief system around what the scripture teaches. It matters whether or not you believe Jesus died spiritually. So let's let's get it. I'm going to read a little bit of a thing I wrote down here. See, it says this. Uh, there are many Christian preachers today who teach that Jesus died spiritually uh, as defined by them. Now, this concept, I believe, just to answer the question, is false doctrine. I'm going to show you why. And you saw what I put in the comments or the uh, description. It's the most heretical belief system held by pe- some Pentecostals and Charismatics. This, by the way, is not a, con- I want to do say this as a uh, kind of as a preface to all, all that I'm going to teach today. This is not uh, a commonly held belief. It's not a doctrine of Pentecost. It's not a doctrine of the charismatic movement. It's just something that people within the movement have believed and taught. So uh, basically they say that Jesus died on the cross and then went to hell where he finished the atoning work. Now this is big. This is big. And, and, and listen, if you, if you've heard this or believed this, let me break it down for you today. And, and without prejudice, let me, let me show you. They believe that Jesus not only died on the cross, but then he went to hell where he finished the atoning work that he was doing on our behalf. Um, and some say that Jesus also lost his divine nature and adopted the nature of Satan, which is the full teaching that I'm talking about today, that he stopped being the son of God and that literally they believe he had to be born again, just like we are, that Jesus had to be born again and then come back in his resurrection, you know, as the first new creature. And so their teach teaching is that he died spiritually, meaning he lost the nature of God, took on the nature of Satan, became uh, a sinner and had to be born again. And then he was resurrected. And, uh, basically they teach that he suffered as we would suffer in the flames of hell for that three day period. And so let me, that that's it laid out for you. Jesus first, he died on the cross, descended into hell, suffered in hell, suffered in hell, in the flames of hell, spiritual punishment, losing his God nature, his son of God nature, becoming uh, in the nature of Satan, becoming a sinner, dead spiritually. So understand understand this. If you talk about somebody who's dead spiritually, I know we throw that around because we'll say like, oh, that church is dead. Or, you know, man, that, he's dead. You know, I wish he'd get, I wish he'd catch on fire. You know, he's, he's one of those dead Christians. Well, when we say that, you know, we use it in kind of a way like they're not entering in maybe to the Holy Spirit or they're not entering into the move of the Holy Ghost. But biblically speaking, if somebody's dead spiritually, they're a sinner. <laughs> That's what the Bible says in Ephesians. Uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And though we were dead in, in our trespasses and sins, he raised us up together with Christ Jesus, seated us in heavenly places. So, Somebody that's dead spiritually uh, does not belong to God, is not a Christian, is not literally does not have the spirit of God dwelling in them. And so to teach that there was a point in Jesus existence where he died spiritually is to teach that he stopped being the son of God, 
that he stopped having God nature and that he took on the nature of sin that he be, not that not what we're talking about that he did on the cross that Paul taught that though he he who knew no sin was made to be sin it doesn't mean that Jesus himself died spiritually or that he stopped being the son of God we're going to break that down doesn't mean that he stopped being the son of God doesn't mean that he died spiritually and became a sinner it means that he took sins upon his body in the same way, Jesus was never sick. There was never a time Jesus was sick, but he took sickness upon himself and took stripes upon his back and by those stripes were healed, right? So what we really need to define in this broadcast today is what happened between his death on the cross, three days, and then his resurrection back from the dead. We need to talk about that. But let me let me read you a few quotes from very, if I said these names, you would know exactly, exactly who they are because they're very well, they're internationally known and I respect them and I love them. So I'm not bashing them today. I'm just saying that this is wrong. If you teach this, this is not scriptural. This is wrong. And some of them have written these things in their books. What I'm getting ready to read to you is from a book that was written by a very famous minister. Listen to this. Jesus paid on the cross and went to hell in my place. Then as God had promised on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. The scene in the spirit realm went something like this. God rose up from his throne and said to demon powers, tormenting the sinless son of God, let him go. Then the resurrection power of almighty God went through hell and filled Jesus. On earth, his grave where they buried him was filled with light as the power of God filled his body. He was resurrected from the dead, the first born again man. Now that that's the first quote I'll read to you. And first of all, that's not true. But let's go on to the next, next quote. An, another uh, very, very prominent minister. Listen to this. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross and went to hell in our place. Then as God promised, third day, rose from the dead. Jesus hung on the cross. He took our sin upon himself. God cannot stay in the presence of sin. As Jesus took our sin, he was separated from the presence of the father. He committed his, and I don't disagree with that part. You know, even Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So when he became the sins of the world, uh, you know, Jesus said out of his own mouth, why have you forsaken me, God? But that doesn't mean he died spiritually, nor does it mean he suffered in hell for our sin. He committed his spirit to the father and died. So they put him, that is his body in a grave. His spirit went to hell because that's where we deserved to go. There's no hope of anyone going to heaven unless they believe this truth. Jesus went to hell for you. He died for you. That's now that's what they teach. Let me read uh, another one to you. He went to hell in your place and gained victory there, triumphing over the enemy. And of course they're quoting Acts 2.31. Let me read you another, uh, another famous one. Very famous person. Listen to this. Now listen to this. For three days, he suffered everything there is to suffer. Some people don't want to believe that. They want to believe that after his death, he just stayed in that upper region of Sheol that the Bible calls paradise, but they're mistaken. If he had simply stayed there, there would have been no price paid for sin. 
That's now that's that's a that that's a man of God that's so prominent he's known around the world. Listen to that last phrase. Some people want to believe that he stayed in the upper region of Sheol that the Bible calls paradise, but they are mistaken. If he had simply stayed there, there would have been no price paid for sin. That's important and we're going to cover it. Because here's the question you got to answer. What was the price paid for sin? What was the price paid for sin? Was it Jesus burning in hell? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. Listen to this. Jesus went to hell to free mankind from the penalty of Adam's treason. When his, this this is important. When his blood poured out, it did not atone. Jesus spent three days and nights in the bowels of this earth getting back to you and me are right with God. Whatever that means. Now listen to this one. This, this is mind-blowing. Jesus' punishment for our sin was to go to hell. It was not the cross. Now this is another very famous minister. Listen to this. Do you think that the punishment for our sin was to die on the cross? If that was the case, the two thieves could have paid your price, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's so stupid to say that. Do you think the punishment for our sin was to die on the cross? If that was the punishment, the two thieves could have died for you. No, they couldn't. The two thieves didn't have sinless blood, you genius. No, the punishment was to go to hell itself and to serve time in hell separated from God. Satan and all the demons of hell... Uh, thought they had him bound and they threw a net over Jesus and dragged him down to the very pit of hell to serve our sentence. (laughs) Tasted spiritual death for every man died on the cross, took our place in spiritual death. His spirit, his inner man went to hell in our place. So let's, let's break down the five things that all these famous people are saying. Number one, Jesus went to hell. Number two, Jesus was separated from the presence of God. Number three, Jesus finished the atoning work in hell. Number four, when Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, it did not atone or completely atone for our sins, and Jesus had to be born again. Now, those are five things they're saying and teaching here. Now, let's let's talk about this. Are these things biblical? Are these things truly gospel, or are they not gospel? Because this matters big time. Because if this is wrong, this is very, very heretical. Number one, let's look at what the Bible says about the atonement of Christ. In in the Gospel of John, chapter 19 and verse 30, that's the first place I'll have you go today. John 19 and verse 30. And I've taught a little bit about this one thing. Uh, on the broadcast before, but I'll, I'll re- re- rehash it here. Listen to this. What did Jesus say in John 19 and verse 30? He's on the cross. And in the 30th verse, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Now, I've taught this. They taught us this in Bible school, and I've taught it on the broadcast. The Greek word that is used here in the manuscript is the word tetelestai. That is the word Jesus shouted out on the cross, 
tetelestai. Historically, this word was used in two ways. Number one, it was used when somebody owed a debt. And when they had fully paid their debt, they would write that tetelestai on the debt or on that bill, which meant paid in full, paid in full. Another way that it was used was when generals were sitting up on their on the mountain on their horse watching the battle go on in the valley and when they saw their army winning the war and the the war literally was had turned in the favor of their army and they knew the battle was won they would literally lift their arms stand in the stirrups on their horse and shout over the valley tetelestai meaning the battle is won so you know he, Jesus is not just simply saying here you know I'm dead they've killed me that's not he's not talking about my life is finished He's talking about his atoning work on the cross. He's, he is done. He had done all that was needed to be done. He was whipped. He, the Bible says, and Peter rec- echoes it in 1 Peter 2, 24. Uh, and, and of course, it was Isaiah's prophecy. He took stripes upon his back. His hands and feet were pierced. A crown of thorns was pulled over his head. He was beaten beyond recognition. They pierced his side and blood and water flowed out. And the Bible says, Jesus finally by the end lifted up his uh, head and said, it is finished, tetelestai, paid in full. The battle is won. And then he gave up the ghost. He gave up the ghost. The sixth word or saying that Jesus spoke from the cross was a single Greek word, tetelestai, means it is finished. Papyri receipts for taxes have been recovered with the word tetelestai written across the meaning paid in full. That's from John Walvoord. And it's from the the Bible knowledge commentary and exposition of the scriptures. It's what I'm talking about. There's actual historical evidence of what I'm telling you. That the word tetelestai was written on bills, uh, the debt is paid in full. That that's exa- that's from the uh, uh, Wearsby commentary, um, an exposition of the New Testament comprising the entire BE series. Uh, literally, that word tetelestai it means the debt is paid in full. In full. Now that's important that we understand that it's paid in full. The reason that's so important is because these guys are teaching. Jesus' blood that was shed upon the cross, his crucifixion, did not pay our debt in full. They're saying there was more debt to be paid, so he had to go to hell. He had to be dragged down to hell by Satan and suffer in the flames of hell for three days and three nights. Had to suffer. Well, if there was more atoning work to be done, then pouring out his blood on the cross, he had no business. Let me, let me say it this way. If Jesus had not yet truly finished the atoning work paying for your sins, he should have waited to shout tetelestai until he was resurrected from the dead. Makes more sense because now the three days have passed. He's suffered in hell. He's been burning in the flames of hell on your behalf. And now three days later, he's resurrected. He's a new creature now. And he's a, he's a believer. Now, when he gets up from the grave, he should shout tetelestai. It is finished. He did not wait. He did not wait until his resurrection right before his death. As he was giving up the ghost, he shouted It is finished. The debt is paid in full. There's no more to be paid for the sins of the world. It was his blood. It was his blood that did it. Now I want you to go with me to Colossians 
chapter two. This is an important verse, a very, there's no way to get around this verse that I'm going to read to you right now. No way to get around it. And this is dangerous because you got people running around teaching that the devil had power over Jesus to make him burn. I mean, to literally listen to what that one preacher said. It's as though the devil threw a net over Jesus and dragged him into the bowels of hell to suffer. Dragged him into the bowels of hell to make him suffer. I want you to listen to Colossians chapter two, and I want you to read verse 14 with me. Colossians 2, 14. In fact, I'll start reading with uh, verse 13. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Listen to this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Thank you, Jesus. Now look at verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside nailing it to the cross. That is huge. That is huge. He set aside the record of debt with its legal demands by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let me read you some of these uh, different uh, translations of that same verse. ESV canceling the record of debt, nailing it to the cross. King James, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, nailing it to his cross. New King James, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, having nailed it to the cross. NIV, having canceled the written code, nailing it to the cross. NRSV, erasing the record that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. Young's literal translation, blotted out the handwriting in the ordinances, having nailed it to the cross. So let me ask you a question. When when was the sin of debt canceled, blotted out, wiped away, or erased? It was taken care of at the cross, not in hell, not by Jesus suffering more. This verse is very clear. This is very clear. This is a verse of scripture that could not be get gotten around. It's so clear that when he canceled the debt, when did he cancel it? When he nailed it to the cross. That's why he was able to lift his voice and say, it is finished. Hallelujah. Now, let me go on a bit further to talk about the authority over Jesus. The only person who ever had authority over Jesus was God the Father. That's the only person. And Jesus himself said, no man can take my life. I lay it down. He said, I lay it down. So there was nobody that could take his life from him. The Romans didn't murder him. You can't murder the master. He had power to lay down his life. Let me tell you why this is important. Because if he didn't have power to lay down his life, then he would not have had the power to take it back up again. And he said that he had the power to take it back up. He said, in three days, I will, uh, 
He said, you'll tear down this temple. He said, in three days, I'll raise it back up again. So the fact that he had the power to lay down his life means that he had the power to take up his life. It was not taken from him. He didn't, it was not ripped away from him. He was not ever. In fact, that the verse that I was reading was Colossians 2.14. And it's very important to understand that God the Father, God the Father had the only authority over Christ Jesus. The only authority. The devil has never had authority over Christ, ever. He only had the, the right to tempt him, the Bible says. But Jesus overcame every single temptation. He didn't have to suffer in hell. In fact, let me read to you what Jesus said. There's actually no biblical evidence for it. So let me read you what Jesus said to the thief on the cross who believed in him. Listen to this. Um, the thief in verse, this is Luke 23, verses 42 and 43. The thief that believed in Jesus, he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Look at Jesus' answer to this man. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today, today, he knew he was going to die that day, today, you will be with me in paradise. In paradise. You see that? Today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus knew where his spirit was headed. He knew exactly where his spirit was headed. He was not wondering where he was going to go. And you can tell by this verse of scripture, Jesus didn't even think he was going to suffer for your sins or for mine. He tells the thief on the cross, we're headed somewhere. When we die today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now let's break this down. Um, what is paradise? What is paradise in the scripture? And I want to talk to you about that because it, it does make a difference. Um, I'll read you. I will read you a, a little passage of scripture here. If you just jump back a few chapters to Luke 16, because this is a, a story Jesus tells to his disciples. However, it's not a parable. It's not a parable. And the reason we know it's not a parable is because Jesus never used names of people if it was a parable. If, if he's naming the people that are in the story, then it's a real story. But if it's a parable, it'll be like, you know, a master had three servants, Matthew 25. You know, there was a, a woman who went to visit the unjust judge. It's just examples. He describes people, but there's no name attached to the people. That's one of the ways we know that this story about the rich man and Lazarus is not a parable. It's a story about a real man, Lazarus, and this rich man. And I want you to see this because this will help you to understand where Jesus was for the three days between his death and his resurrection. Look at this. The Bible says, by the way, everybody didn't go to the same place before the resurrection. They didn't all go to the same place. Look, Luke 16, 19, there was a rich man 
who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Um, Sometimes it's also rendered Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or as it's pronounced in Greek, Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm anguished in the flames. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. And now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. Look at that. Lazarus is comforted here and you are in anguish there. So notice that Father Abraham, in these two positions, he's at, and that's another way you know it's not a parable, Abraham is an actual man, a father of our faith. So Abraham's there in paradise, Lazarus is there with him in paradise, the rich ungodly man is down in the lower parts of Hades being tortured and suffering and is in anguish. And notice they are two separated places. And notice what uh, Abraham says. He said, uh, child, remember that you had good things, he had bad things, and now he's comforted. So one of the things that we can be sure of is that the upper part of Hades, which is called paradise or Abraham's bosom, is a place of comfort. Hallelujah. I want you to write it in the comments. Abraham's bosom, paradise, was a place of of comfort. Paradise was a place of comfort. I want you to write that in the comments because it is a massive fact that you need to understand today about this thought process. Paradise was a place of comfort, not of torment, not of torture, not of suffering, not of punishment. It was a place of comfort. Amen. Paradise is a place, not is a place, was a place. I want you to put was because it doesn't exist anymore. Abraham's bosom does not exist anymore. There is no more waiting place for the, for the dead any longer. And I'll explain that in a moment. But before Jesus died and was resurrected, you couldn't just throw those who obeyed the law and those who followed after God. You couldn't just throw them into hell until Jesus uh, died and was resurrected and they could go to heaven for their, their godliness. That would be unjust. You can't just throw Old Testament godly people into hell until Jesus comes. So there had to be another place for them that was a waiting place. Notice that the Bible says regarding Abraham that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham couldn't be righteous because Jesus hadn't come yet. There was no blood of Jesus to wash away his sins and make Abraham righteous. But because he believed God, it was put into an account. His righteousness was put into an account for him. 
And so it would have been wrong to make Abraham suffer in hell, Isaac, Jacob. It would have been wrong to have Elijah and Elisha and David and all these. It had been wrong to have them suffering in hell. They were godly men. They were godly men. Noah, Adam, you know, you don't throw those men into hell or those women. They followed after God. So what do you do? Because they're still unqualified to go into heaven because they're not regenerated. They're not, uh, they don't have a God-like nature. So you can't just take them all into heaven. They needed the blood of Jesus to regenerate them and make them literal Christians. So they had to wait in that place of paradise. It was a place of comfort. Paradise was a place of comfort. He said, he's comforted here, but you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Listen, 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 listen. This is so big. if, If nobody's ever seen this before, this is massive. Abraham said this and Jesus said it, meaning it's the truth. A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Okay, stop there. Did you just see that? That is Jesus affirming that it is impossible to cross the chasm between paradise, Abraham's bosom, and Hades, the place of suffering, the place of anguish, the place of burning. Jesus inspired by the Holy Ghost, just said that it is impossible for those that are in paradise to cross into Hades, and it is impossible for those that are there in suffering to cross over into paradise. Impossible. It is fixed. So in order to believe that Jesus did not stay in that place of paradise for three days, you have to either believe one of two things. Either Jesus was lying here in this story or he was lying on the cross. Either way, you have to say Jesus is a liar because in this story, Jesus himself says you can't cross over. So for these well-known ministers that say, well, if you believe, let me go back and read that because that's something that's a very important point. Listen to what, what, what was said. Listen to this. Some people don't want to believe that. They want to believe that after his death, Jesus just stayed in that upper region of Sheol that the Bible calls paradise, but they're mistaken. If he had stayed there, he would have been, there would have been no price paid for sin. Stop there. That man of God just said, that Jesus did go to paradise, but didn't stay there. He didn't stay there. He crossed over. Well, Jesus is the one who said no one can cross over. He said no one can go from paradise to that place of suffering. There's a chasm. It is fixed. You can't cross over. Nor can anyone from uh, uh, the place of suffering come over here into paradise. Okay? So that minister is just now saying, Jesus went to paradise, yes, but he, he didn't stay there. He went down into suffering. Okay, then you're saying Jesus is a liar because Jesus said no man can cross the chasm. Nobody. 
Or if you believe that he did, then you're saying that Jesus went straight to suffering. To, did he go? Because if you can't cross over, okay, well, maybe he just went straight to suffering from the cross. Well, if that's the truth, then Jesus lied to the, he lied to the thief on the cross next to him because he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Listen, paradise is not the same place as the place of suffering. And we just read that from Luke 16, not the same place. So here's what you need to understand. Jesus is not a liar. The word of God is not false. Jesus said what he was going to do. Notice this. He said what he was going to do. I want you to write this in the comments. Jesus knew what he was going to do and said what he was going to do. Put that in the comments. Jesus knew what he was going to do and he said what he was going to do. I mean, this couldn't be any more important of, of a, a, a topic than it is because we're talking about our own redemption. We're talking about what Jesus did for the sins of the world. We're talking about the heretical belief that Jesus, Satan took uh, Jesus under his control and literally Jesus became a sinner. He lost his godlike nature and became under the control and power of sin and suffered in the flames of hell. There is no, there is no biblical evidence for that. None. And I'll read you some other ones. Listen to this. That was Luke 23. We read today. You'll be with me in paradise. Listen to, let me go to acts chapter two for a minute, because this is, this is powerful for you to understand in this context. Acts chapter 2, let's read a few verses, starting in verse 27. Actually, you know what? Let's, uh, let's read starting in verse 25. Listen to this. Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read 25 through probably 31. Or no, 35. 25 through 35. Acts 2, 25 through 35. Listen to this. For David says concerning him, that's Jesus. This is messianic prophecy, by the way. This is being quoted from the Old Testament messianic prophecy. David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not, listen to this, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. This is messianic prophecy about Jesus. David wrote this down. You'll not abandon my soul to Hades. You'll not let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life and you will make known to me the full gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set, send one of his descendants on his throne. That's Jesus. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you for yourselves are seeing and hearing. Look at this. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Why? He was in Abraham's bosom. He was in paradise. But he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Listen to this. Jesus said to his father, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, not into the devil's hands, not into the devil's hands. Remember that. Um, Randy's asking a question. Randy Corky, I have a question. I do not believe that Jesus became a sinner, but I always understood that, uh, that he went to hell to rip the keys away from Satan and to make a public show of him, where did Jesus go? In what place did he rip the keys away from Satan? Well, remember this, Satan's not in hell. Very important point to, to, to know, Satan's loosed on the earth. He's not in hell. Satan's not suffering in hell right now. He is loosed on the earth. How do you think he approached Jesus when he was tempting him? How do you think he's out and about uh, like, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? The devil's not in hell. That's not happened yet. He will be cast into the lake of fire, but he's not there now. For those that are not serving Christ, he's still God of this world over them. So Jesus didn't have to go into the place of suffering to take back the keys of death on the grave. He didn't actually have to go into the suffering place of Hades. It was by his acting. It was actually by his work of atonement. It was by his resurrection. It was by his redemptive act that he took back the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He did not have to uh, uh, actually walk up to Satan in hell and take them from his hand. It was his action of redemption, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension that he took back the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He didn't have to do it. You know, it would have been pointless for him to even go into hell. Satan's not there. The Bible tells us that. Bible tells us that in second Corinthians, that Satan's the God of this world, that he roams about to, you know, he's literally going to see who he can devour. So that's an important point to understand. And it's a great question, Randy. So notice he's, Jesus said, father into your hands, I commit my spirit, not into Satan's hands. Satan didn't drag Jesus down, didn't drag Jesus down into suffering. He said, Lord, into your father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Listen to this. 1 Peter 3.19. This is an important one. So the Bible said, and I'll go a little bit before it so you can see this. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Do you see that? That's verse 18. He suffered once for sins. Not twice. He didn't suffer on the cross and then go suffer in hell. That would be twice. Suffered bodily, and then went and suffered spiritually. Bible doesn't teach that. Peter writes here, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see that? Not dead in the spirit, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Let me ask you this. 
if you go to hell, don't you understand that's the end. That's the end of it. Amen. You can't go to hell and then get out of hell. Once you're there, you're there. So he's not talking about here that Jesus went down and preached to those that were in Hades, like the rich man, that he went down and preached to those that have been damned to hell because they were ungodly and did not follow the law. And like Abraham had their righteousness put into their account until Jesus could come. The spirits who were in prison are those that literally went into paradise. Those were the ones who were waiting on Jesus' ministry. Those were the ones that were waiting on redemption, not sinners in hell, but those who had their righteousness accounted to them. It's like, it was like an IOU because there was nothing to give them yet. Think of it this way. As it says about Abraham, you know, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, why did it have to be accounted to him? Why did he need an IOU from God? Because there was nothing to give Abraham yet. You, you realize that? There was nothing to give Abraham. Jesus hadn't come. The blood had not been shed. The crucifixion had not yet happened. The resurrection had not yet happened. So what's he going to give an unregenerated man? He couldn't fill Abraham with the Holy Spirit. It would have blown his body up. He, he couldn't take Abraham into heaven. He was still in a sin nature, just covered by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. You understand? So there, what could he give Abraham? There's nothing he could actually give him. He had to give him an IOU that you will actually have all this righteousness accredited to you once we can get the blood of Jesus shed, once the redemptive act can take place, stay in this place of paradise Stay in this place of comfort until that moment comes. How wonderful is God that he saw men on the earth who, though they could not be redeemed from sin yet, he could cover their sins so he didn't have to look at them, so he didn't have to judge them. You know, that's how wonderful God is. He doesn't want to judge them. He wanted them to be in a place of comfort. He wanted them to be his children. And it's so wonderful because even though he could not remove their sins from them, he made a way, a system that the blood of bulls and lambs and goats could cover their sins so that God didn't have to look at their sins so that he didn't have to punish their sins. That's, I mean, that's powerful, man. That is powerful. God made a way, a system, so he didn't have to look at their sins so that he didn't have to punish their sins. And that's what the law was all about. That's what it showed them their sins. See, the law, Paul taught us that. The law is there to show us our sins. It's like a mirror. When you look into the law, you can see where your imperfections are. You can see where you failed God. You can see where you didn't measure up to the mark. Bible tells us that. You can see where you don't measure up to his expectations. The law was like a mirror. It showed people their sins, but also if you obeyed the law, it covered your sins. They were still there, but it covered them. It's like if you've ever, um, have you ever, (laughs) have you ever told your children to clean their room and you run upstairs to check on what they've done and they've thrown everything under their bed. They've pushed everything in the closet and shut the door, right? And you come into the room looks clean 
but everything's not really back where it's supposed to be. And what happened is that they just covered their mess. They didn't clean their mess. You ever seen that? They've covered their mess, but they didn't clean their mess. So that when you open the door and peek inside, you don't have to look at their mess, but the mess is still there. Same exact thing. In the time of the law of Moses, the mess was still there. The sin was still there. The, the, but God will allowed them to drape the blood of sheep, lambs, you know, bulls, goats, over that mess so that he didn't have to look at that mess. And so he didn't have to punish that mess. Thank you, Jesus. But those that were obedient to the law, they didn't have to go suffer. They went to paradise. They were in waiting. Who were they in waiting for? Jesus, who would come to them after his death. Glory to God. That would come to them after his death. And what was it that really we got and we see here? Number one, Jesus knew what he would do, said what he would do. Lord, today, Father, into, my, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So his, his spirit didn't go into Satan's hands, went into God's hands. Number two, today you'll be with me in paradise. Where did Jesus go? He went to paradise, the place of comfort where all the other Old Testament saints were waiting for him. They needed redemption. They needed the work of the cross. And so he went and preached to the captives who were in prison. Not, and he himself said, I can't cross over into a suffering place. There's a chasm no one can cross over. He said it. I went to paradise, went there, preached to the captives that were in prison. Three days later, after being in that place of comfort, preaching to the captives, he took his life up again as he had the power to do. And the Holy Ghost raised him from the dead. Hallelujah. No, Allison, I've already covered that. There is no more paradise anymore. It was only needed until Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. It was only needed for Old Testament people. There's no, there's no purgatory. There's no waiting place anymore. There is no... Uh, you know, there's no paradise anymore. That's only for Old Testament believers. That's all. We go straight to heaven. The Bible says, uh, Paul taught that, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You've read that. And of course, he's talking to Christians. That's not true for sinners. <laughs> You'll to, to be absent from the body is to be separated from the Lord. So what we're understanding, learning is that in, in the New Testament context, if you're absent from your body, you're present with the Lord if you're a Christian. But if you're not, if you're absent from the body, you go to hell if you're a sinner. There's only two destinations now. And although there were three then, it was temporary so that God didn't have to punish those who had worked to obey the law and to try to keep his commands. So we can clearly see that Jesus said, I commit my spirit into your hands, Father. I'm going to paradise. Can't cross over. Three days later, he was resurrected. 40 days later, he ascended. 10 days later, sent the Holy Ghost. That's the timeline, in case you were wondering. For those that tell us, well, you know, he people that well, they'd love to believe he just stayed in comfort. He said you had to. There's no other place you can go. You can't cross the chasm. Jesus said so. 
Why did he say so? The Holy Spirit inspired him to say so. You can't. So either the Holy Spirit and Jesus are liars or the Bible is true. Can't cross over. Jesus didn't cross over. To say that Jesus, now think about this. I'm amazed by how little people even think. Because if I name the names, you'd be blown away. But the people that think this, the people that wrote this in their books, the people that taught this from their magazines and taught this from the pulpit, to say, as this one man did, do you think that the punishment for our sin was to die on a cross? If that were the case, the two thieves could have paid your price. What a stupid, stupid, stupid thing to say. Do you, do you honestly think that the reason sin was canceled was because a man was nailed to a tree? No, it was because a sinless man was nailed to a tree. That's the reason. I mean, how dumb are you that you say, well, you know, the thieves could have paid your price. You, if that, if that's how you think you don't understand the gospel message, he was born of a virgin. There's a reason he was born of a virgin. Sin passes through the bloodstream of the men to the women to the children. The Holy Spirit had to give a sinless seed to that woman's body so that he could come out of her with no sin. Jesus was a sinless man. That is important. The virgin birth is an important part of doctrine for the Orthodox Christian Church. You have to believe in the virgin birth. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, then no one has salvation. Do you realize that's how important it is? Put that in the comments. If I don't believe in the virgin birth, no one is saved. Or, or say it this way. If, if the virgin birth is not true, no one is saved. <laughs> that's how strong that is. Put it in the comments. If the virgin birth isn't true, no one is saved. Because the moment you remove the virgin birth from our belief system, it removes all of redemption. <laughs> you realize that? It's the key. If that's not true, all of it isn't true. Because, listen, if the virgin birth did not happen, then Jesus didn't matter and his life didn't matter and his death didn't matter, right? Because what does it matter? Uh, if, if the virgin birth didn't happen, then what that preacher said is true. Anybody could have died on the cross for us. Of course, it wouldn't have accomplished anything. Wouldn't have accomplished anything because what Paul taught to the Corinthian church is so extremely important. What did he teach? Look at 2 Corinthians 5. This is so important. Listen. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Do you see that? God took Jesus who knew no sin. The Bible says he knew no sin. This is why I'm starting to wonder 
if people actually believe that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of Almighty God. I honestly am starting to wonder, and, and I know it's not the case for a lot of uh, millennial preachers and, and those that are you know 40 and, and younger, maybe even 50 and younger. Some of them have said it publicly that they don't believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God, that there's other things that we also have to take into account. That's insane, first of all. And there's no way you can keep a, a solid Christianity believing like that. But I'm starting to wonder if these guys who I, you know, I look up to and I wonder how can you make statements like that when there are so clearly scriptures that contradict outright what you said? How can you believe that? So knowing that Jesus, who knew no sin, no sin, was made to be sin. God took the sins of the world and put them onto Christ on the cross. And then that verse we read in Colossians 2.14 is so important because it tells us clearly that the debt that we owed for the sins of our lives and the whole world was canceled out when it was nailed to the cross. (laughs) The sufficiency of the cross. That's why I'm really wondering how many actually how many people actually believe in the sufficiency of scripture anymore. I don't think hardly anybody does. And I and I'm starting to realize many charismatics, many Pentecostals don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture. Don't believe it. You know, they don't believe what Now listen to this. I've read this to you and we're going to pray in a second cuz I've shown you the answer. But, but let me read Timothy had a letter come from Paul, the last letter Paul ever wrote from Rome before he was killed. And Paul says clearly to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all of it, all of it is breathed out by God. This is why people are dumb when they say, well, brother, I only read the gospels because that's what Jesus said. Well, you're dumb if that's how you think, because the whole Bible is inspired by the Holy Ghost, by God himself, Genesis to Malachi, Matthew to Revelation. The whole Bible is inspired by God. Paul said it, all scripture, all scripture, all scripture. Genesis to Malachi, Matthew to Revelation, all scripture is breathed out by God. You know, that that is right there, a very important phrase, breathed out by God, breathed out by God. That's more important, that's more powerful than even saying is inspired by God. More important because it means that it was actually spoken by God. It came out of his mouth. His breath was the thing that entered into the writers and the speakers. You realize that? It came out of him. It's his own breath. If you study pneumatology, that's the study of the breath of God or the the Holy Spirit. Scholars all believe that the, the pneuma, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit is the breath of God. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. And notice this, all scripture is breathed out. The Holy Ghost 
inspired the writers and led them along, the Bible says. And it's profitable for teaching and reproof, correction, and training for righteousness that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'm blown away when there's Christians who don't believe that the Bible is inspired and that it's inerrant. And to make, you know, to flippantly make comments, think about this for a moment, to flippantly make comments about redemption without fully studying it out for yourself or just preaching it because you heard somebody else preach it. If there's any young preachers on here, if there's anybody that's an exhorter, a preacher, a worship leader, whatever you might be, if you have a public speaking position, let me give you a piece of advice that is gold. Don't ever preach something because you heard someone else preach it. Don't ever preach something because um, someone you respect said it or preached it. Don't ever do that. If you are going to preach something you heard someone else preach, make it your own personal revelation by studying it out in the word for yourself. Study it out in the word for yourself. No, don't just get up and say, well, you know, I I was listening to so-and-so and they preached this. I thought it was powerful. Study it out for yourself. Know what scriptures back up what you're preaching. Know that the doctrine is true because some, you know, men are not perfect. Men are fallible. So what you may maybe end up happening is something like this. These people that I'm reading here, some of them heroes, heroes in the faith. And I still listen to them preach. I, I'm be honest with you. I've not written them off. I understand that people can be wrong about something, but it, they're, they're legitimately wrong. It's not that they have a, an evil heart and that they want to deceive the minds of many and, you know, take people into false doctrine. They just made a mistake. I get that. I understand that. I've preached stuff. <laughs> I've preached stuff when I was younger that go look looking back, I was like, man, I was wrong about that one. And I've corrected it. <laughs> so I want to encourage you with that. You know, you you have to make it your own by knowing what the Bible says and by studying it out for yourself. And by knowing, you know, I would almost look at it objectively and say, okay, I'm going to act like I don't believe it and see if I can disprove it from scripture. That's an even better way to look at it. Like an attorney would. I'm going to look at this revelation. Maybe it's something you've never heard before. Something that's like seems cutting edge to you. I'm going to say, well, you know what? I'm going to act like I don't believe it and see if I can find it where the Bible may contradict it or teach the opposite of what they're saying. Well, that's a good way to do it because if you are actively trying to disprove it by the written scripture and can't, then it's exactly something you you should preach because the Bible teaches it. You see? And so know it. Know it. Michael, yeah, I'm not I'm not dis, I'm not disagreeing. I mean, Jesus said out of his own mouth. Michael Figueroa is saying on Facebook, "Was there a separation at any time at the cross between God and the Father?" Uh he mean which he means Christ and the Father, which says, "Why is the forsaking me?" He said it out of his own mouth, Michael. I'm not, uh, I'm not disagreeing with that. Christ said that my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When did God turn his back? When the sins of the entire world were placed upon Christ, did Christ lose though? Here's the question because here's what we're really combating. Did Christ lose his son of God status at that moment? 
Did he become a sinner at that moment? Was he dead spiritually at that moment? I don't believe so. The Bible does not teach it. The Bible doesn't say he became a sinner, doesn't say he died spiritually. It doesn't say he stopped being the son of God, lost his son of God nature. If that was the case, there would have been no point for the sins to be on him. If you put the sins of the world on a sinless being so that they can be crucified to the cross and removed from you, if he stops being a sinless being, he's now disqualified to carry that penalty. That's the whole point of him being sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He has to remain sinless so that your sins could be put upon him and crucified to the cross. Colossians 2.14 tells us the cross was the cure for sin. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Put it in the comments. The cross was the cure for sin. Hallelujah. Put it in the comments, man. The cross was was the cure for sin. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The cross was the cure for sin. Cure for yours, mine, and the world's. Anybody who believes on his name, who confesses that Jesus is Lord, believes in their heart God raised Jesus from the dead, that faith saves them. It's by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. We can't do enough good things to be saved, but by grace through faith, we can receive the free gift of salvation when the gospel's preached unto us. Amen. And I wanted you to hear that because more and more it's creeping around. I keep hearing it pop up. I've heard it for years, but I keep hearing it pop up. And that's why it was just a sign or a signal to my spirit, especially for you that are listening on the podcast, those of you that are watching the broadcast. It was a sign to my spirit. Cover this heresy. It's a heresy. It's a heresy to say Jesus stopped being the son of God. It's a heresy to say the devil took control of Jesus and dragged him to hell. It's a heresy. There was never a time that the devil had authority over Jesus, ever, ever. God has authority. Amen. That's right. Pastor Brian Wright, if my sins are handled at the cross, the punishment of hell no longer has to be a substitute through Jesus. It has to be substituted through Jesus. That's right. That's right. Well, that's what they're talking about, Norman. If you just use, that's why the word hell is such a bad word to use. The word hell in the English language is such a bad word because in the original Greek and Hebrew, there are different words for the different places. So, you know, Hades or in the Greek Hades, Sheol, the ultimate hell, Gehenna, which is the lake of fire. They're not all the same. They're not all the same. And so um, understanding that, as I, I covered earlier, there was one place where the rich man was. There was another place where Lazarus and Abraham were. You understand? So the people of the Old Testament, Abraham was of the Old Testament. The people who obeyed the law, obeyed God, got to go to the place of paradise, the place of comfort as they waited. But that's why it's such a misleading word, hell, because we just group all those places into one word, hell. But they're not all the same place. They're not all for the same thing. Gehenna as hell 
is not the same as Hades is hell is not the same as Sheol is hell. You know, the place of paradise, you know, it's not, it's not all the same. So it's kind of misleading. I understand. That's why I like it when Bible translations in English actually use the words uh, from the Hebrew or for the, from the Greek and don't just say hell, but they'll say Hades or they'll say Sheol or they'll say Gehenna because they are very different places. Great question. Great question. I want to pray for those of you. Maybe you're even watching or maybe you got a hold of this podcast and you're listening to it today and you're not serving the Lord. So the first prayer I want to pray is for those who've not taken advantage of the redemption that Christ made available through his death on the cross, burial, his resurrection on the third day. I want, I want to give you an opportunity to serve the Lord. And if you're watching or listening, you don't serve Jesus, but you heard me preaching the gospel today and you know that you need to serve the Lord. I want you to pray this prayer with me right now. Repeat it with me. Say, Father, I come to you in Jesus name. Forgive me of my sin. Make me new. Give me power to live for you. I confess that Jesus is Lord. I believe you raised him from the dead. And today I'm a new creation. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Give me holy desires. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Empower you to empower me to please you with my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, listen to me. I want you to go to my website, miracleword.com, and I want you to click on the tab that says, I just got saved. Click on that. I have some other things that I want to tell you very quickly. I want to bless you. I want to give you a gift. I want you to stay connected with us because we'll help you take next steps to disciple you into the faith, help you find a strong church where you live. We want to stand beside you as you're doing what God's called you to do. We love you. Father, I'm praying for all those that are watching, the Victory Tribe, those that are on the broadcast today. Lord, I pray that you'd not only bless them, but I pray that you'd put a fire in their belly to spread this gospel message before it's too late. Lord, we know Jesus is coming soon. Put an urgency in our spirit to preach this gospel. Lord, I pray you open doors for us. You know our prayer. By the end of the year, we want to be able to say, as for me and my whole house, we serve the Lord. Let this be a year, Lord, of household salvation, husbands and wives being saved, sisters, brothers, mothers, fathers, and children and grandchildren coming into the kingdom. Lord, make it possible. Open the door. Break down the barriers around their hearts. Let them hear the gospel, receive, believe, and come into the kingdom. In Jesus' mighty name, we thank you, Lord. We give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, somebody threw fire in the comments. If you believe it and stand and say, this is my year for violent increase. And let me say before we do anything else today, that we're giving you an opportunity to partner with this ministry that's preaching the gospel. And uh, myself, Carolyn, uh, the whole team, as we're doing what the Lord's told us to do, thank you. We've got people that are standing with us, man. Thank you, Pastor Brian, Sona Seed, and Pastor Nicole, First Lady, Archbishop Hess, Nicole. Thank you for sowing a seed. You can follow his uh, lead and sow a seed right on Facebook or Periscope Twitter by using hashtag donate in the comments section. If you're in the U.S., you can use Cash App or PayPal or Venmo. All the information's on the screen, but easiest way to stand with us in partnership is to go to miracleword.com and click on the give or partner tab. You can even create an account that's password protected and you can adjust the frequency of your giving, the amounts of your giving. But I want to, I want to challenge you. This is a challenge going out to you today. I'm believing God 
for a thousand people that are going to start standing with us at $85 a month. Many of you have done it already, but you're, you might be watching and say, you know what? I have the faith to step out and do that. I'm challenging the, those that are watching today to be one of the thousand that would step out and sow $85 a month in partnership, believing God for a nation change, a world change before Jesus comes back. And if you'll do that, if you'll stand with me at $85 a month, that's $1,000 a year. That's about a cell phone bill. That's about a cable bill, something you'd spend for your family to go out for dinner one time. But think about what it does in the kingdom. I'm challenging you. Maybe you've never thought about standing with us at this level. I pray the Lord speaks to you today to step out by faith and to begin partnering at $85 a month or more. Listen, for everybody that does this month, we're going to give you what I consider to be one of the most powerful books ever released for Pentecostal and Charismatic Christians, The Gifts and Ministries of the Holy Spirit by Dr. Lester Sumrall, uh, who operated in all these gifts of the Spirit proficiently, a powerful man of God. This is our gift to you for the month of August if you're partnering at $85 or more uh, this month. And if you'd like to receive this gift, go to miracleword.com forward slash offer, fill out the form, let me know that you'd like to receive it, and we will send it to you. You'll put your address in, tell us how you sowed your seed, and, uh, and we will send it to you as our gift to you as well. And then, of course, to everybody that's sowing, $1,000 or more. And thank you to all those that are doing that. If you sow $1,000 or more this month, number one, not only are we going to send you that book by Dr. Sumrall, but this brand new book and a special limited edition, as you know, we did a hardcover. There's only a few of these. I think there's only a, about 100 of them. So everybody that does this, we're going to send you this hardcover version and then the Genuine Leather Life Application Study Bible. It's our way to say thanks. It's not what you're giving to receive. It's just my way of saying thank you to you for standing with us because I love you and I appreciate you. And uh, we really appreciate those that God has connected us with. Did you know, literally, you're an answer to my prayers and Carolyn's prayers. We've prayed that God would send Holy Ghost-filled, hungry people to stand with Miracle Word Ministries as we're believing for the greatest days we've ever seen. And we're seeing them. God's doing it. It's all coming to pass just like we prayed. And uh, I'm so excited. Got some things to share in the next couple of days. I'm looking forward to it, man. But God's moving. This is the best year ever. Let me just say, 2020 is not canceled at all. Violent increase is your story. Expedited favor is your story in the mighty name of Jesus. We're feeding children around the world. You're standing with us also to do that. And uh, we're a blessing to our generation. We're not just giving them the gospel. We're providing. We're feeding. We're helping. Just like Jesus commanded us to do. And I'm going to tell you, it's important that you're a part of this Victory Tribe. We love you guys so much. Thanks for hanging today. I'll be back again in the morning, 1030. I'll see you there. Have a powerful and a blessed day. I love you so much. I'll talk to you again soon. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.